Well, let's turn to Mark chapter 12. Get out your Bibles. As you know, we provide Bibles for you, or you may not know this. Uh, always feel free to grab one, take it home with you. It's yours if you want uh, a Bible for any reason. Maybe you want to um, have this version that we typically preach from. Mark chapter 12, we're going to finish up Mark 12 this week, and then we'll move on to some different thematic messages in the coming weeks as we move towards Advent season. Uh, but for those of you who haven't been around here for a while, we've been going through the book of Mark off and on for several years, and we've been in Mark 12 a lot of this fall. So we'll finish up today, and I know God's going to speak to us today. I felt a great sensing of this uh, as I, as, as even last Sunday morning, I was driving back uh, with my family from vacation. I'd listened to Chip Johnson's sermon, which was an outstanding sermon from the previous week, and, and I started thinking again about uh, where we're going to go in this week, and I really felt God has something uh, special for us this morning in this message, and so it's not an accident you're here. Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 38. He also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces the front seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. They will receive harsher punishment. Verse 41, sitting across from the temple treasury, he, being Jesus, watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny, tiny coins worth very little. Verse 40, 43 now. Summoning, summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor widow has put more than all those giving to the temple treasury. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she possessed, all she had to live on. One of my cousins was traveling with his family in New Orleans, and at the time, he wasn't familiar with the city, and so being in the French quarters, he got on the wrong street, and that can be a little dangerous because right there in the middle of the broad daylight, a lady was kind of scantily dressed, and so quickly, he's trying to find the best exit, the best way out, and he had his daughter with him, a little girl. I'm thinking she was six or so at the time. And as he's planning his exit, there was a older gentleman, an older man, a Cajun guy, who said this. He said, little girl, when you grow up, don't be like her. Now, there's, there's some sadness in this story. Sadness in the fact that this social situation was such that, that things of that nature occur and maybe it wasn't the best planning to, to have your daughter on a particular street like that. But those accidents happen, don't they? But that statement that even sometimes people who are, who are stuck in a, a lifestyle that they don't prefer or didn't choose to be in can, can recognize that they're not being a good mentor. They're not being a good example. And the statement was, little girl, don't be like her. In this passage today... 
There's a lot of different ways we can look at it. And I've preached this, this passage before through the years, but here's the angle I'm looking at today. It's this contrast that Jesus puts uh, between two different types of people. And, and he's saying, in this message, he's saying, hey, here's a group of people you shouldn't be like, but here's someone that you need to be aware of. Now, the title of this teaching is this, who is your mentor? Which is a modern word. The word mentor is a, is a word that is other generations wouldn't understand, but you and I kind of understand it. We're trying to work through what a mentor is. And we immediately think, well, a mentor is kind of this active person that we meet with on a regular basis. And uh, we ask them questions and then they give us feedback and it's very directive. And that is true. And I've had some mentors like that. And that's kind of an on and off again proposition too. You don't usually don't have one of those mentors forever. They come for a season and then they leave in and out. And those types of mentors are what we imagine, this type of active, very involved mentor. But what we fail to realize a lot is some of the most influential mentors in our life are the unobvious ones. Grandparents, parents, uncles, aunts, teachers, coaches. And whether we like this or not, none of us really want to admit this, but we also are mentored by these cultural personalities uh, that really influence, influence our style of clothes we wear and the way we uh, cut our hair. It influences uh, the choices we make in our cars and our housing and our entertainment. And, and even though we don't really want to admit that, these type of cultural personalities really influence us often. And a lot of times we're drawn to those type of mentors. That's why most high school kids, especially in the 90s, ask, who's your mentor? Well, Michael Jordan's my mentor uh, because he's safe. We look up to him. He can really dunk a great basketball and he's exciting to watch. And, and then he's also paid to market product where he always Always looks perfect and acts perfect. And, and this is where our hearts are, are drawn to. We're drawn to um, idolizing and making icons of people we don't really know because it's safe, because they can't really hurt us. And so that's, that's one of the challenges we have. And, and we have to understand that this type of mindset has come into the church today. And I think one of the challenges we have in the church today is that we're idolizing popular types of personalities that are marketed to us. I certainly don't think it's wrong uh, to, to have people you look up to and, and mentors that you don't know personally. Some of my mentors I've never met before. I'm going to tell a story of, of one of them today, and that's certainly fine and that's appropriate. But we, we must understand that Jesus has called us to live this incarnational life where the people that we learn from and the people that we teach, that it is not just a transfer, it's not just a transfer of information. It's doing life together. That, that's the model Jesus uh, demonstrated to us when he lived life among the 12, among the 70, and among those who followed him. That's what Paul demonstrated to us. When Paul said, listen, you know who I am. You've seen my way of life. It's not just about what I teach. It's about who I am. And it's about who we are together as we live this life together. And that's not a life of perfection as much as it is a life of grace underneath the leadership of Jesus. So here's the first thing I think Jesus is telling us. If you want to take notes, write this down. It's on the review. There's blanks for this. Don't be like the religious leaders. 
Don't be like the religious leaders. Now, since I'm a religious leader, this puts me at a really uh, awkward situation here. So we will say contextually, he was talking specifically about the religious leaders of his day and those who were listening to this conversation. But I think that obviously we've all been influenced by religious leaders in a positive way. And so this is not a statement that is indicting all of them, but it's saying there's a certain type of religious leader and, and there's a certain type of ethos religious leaders have that we're a attracted to that is actually damaging to us. I want to say that again. There's a certain ethos or persona in our religious leaders that we're attracted to and we desire and we want, but it actually can be damaging to the life of Christ in us. This is, this is a great, great challenge. And I, you can certainly apply this to, to other types of leaders. It doesn't have to be just religious leaders, but I think the text is saying that most clearly. Look at verse 38 again. It'll be on the screen. He said in his teaching, beware of the scribes who was, the scribes were a certain sect of Pharisees who were the Jewish religious leaders who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplace, the front seat in the synagogues, the places of honor at banquets. And then it goes on and tells of a practice that they evidently did in those days. Many, they devour widows, houses and say long prayers just for show. Evidently, many widows would leave their homes in their inheritance to the synagogue, modern-day equivalent of the church, or ancient equivalent of the modern-day church. And the scribes would uh, most likely benefit financially from that. And it says these, these who are supposed to be religious leaders will receive harsher punishment. We know this in the scripture does say that uh, those who teach will be judged more harshly. And so this is just a spiritual principle that's been from the beginning. The point I'm trying to make to us today is this, is that, is that the part of us that desires recognition, that desires honor, that desires fame. Listen, I would say that any of us with some level of healthy self-esteem. I suppose there's people with, with very, uh, very diminished self-image who, who say they wouldn't want any of that. But if you have some kind of healthy self-image, there's no doubt that's an attractive uh, happening for us. When, when we're honored, when, when people speak well of us, when people recognize us, that, that, that is something we want, we desire. And in the right context, it's certainly appropriate. But when it becomes the driving force of our life, when it becomes the passion of our life, when it becomes that with, which is what we seek after and what, which is the intentions of our heart and it drives everything we do, it puts us in a very dangerous place. It puts us in a place where we would take advantage of even the weakest among us to get the honor that we lust for and that we desire for. Even the widows among us, that they would be taken advantage of financially, that they would be oppressed, that they would be unjustly treated just to help us reach the status and elite uh, recognition that we need. And Jesus is saying, just be careful that these who are well-dressed and have titles and well-spoken of and have honorable positions among you may not be the ones you need to look after. In fact, they may be damaging to you. And why is that? Well, there's many, many reasons, but 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 says this. I think this will help us today. Do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. Let's just pause there for a second. I think we need to understand the context of this. The context of this is talking about about a love that causes our affection to be so attached to things of this life, things that are earthly. It's not wrong to love the planet and love our country and love society and, and love the gifts that God gives us. But when we love those things more than we love the Lord and we love those things more than we love other people, then it becomes an idol in our life. Verse 16 elaborates, for everything that belongs to the world, and I love how the Holman translates this. Instead of using the word love, they use the word lust, which is a more accurate interpretation. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, because we know this is that pure love is not selfish, but lust always is selfish. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and then here's the part I wanna emphasize to you, and that's why I underlined it on the screen here. The pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And that's the, con the, the conclusion of that scripture we'll look at. The pride in one's lifestyle. I understand that I pastor a group of people here. You guys are sharp. Statistically, you're among, you're among some of the richest people who've ever lived on this planet. You may not feel rich today as you're waiting for your next paycheck, but in the full scope of your per capita income and, and the opportunity we have, most of us, I hope, are gonna eat today. We have somewhere to live. We're mobile people. We have transportation. I know most of you travel because most of you weren't here two weeks ago for fall break. Um, and we, we, we have some advantages. Um, education is just expected here. You're just kind of expected to get your high school education. And then I know a lot of you, even as adults, you're pursuing um, additional degrees and you're getting more education and, and you, you are sharp people. You, you are people of, of great accomplishment. And you know what that's for? Do you know what your accomplishment is for? Do you know what your business success and your personal success is for? It's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. Because everything you have belongs to him. Everything you belong, have belongs to him to make Jesus known and so that, that Jesus can be declared. But the problem is, is that pride subtly comes in and pride pollutes that which is a gift from God. And the pride in our lifestyle even before service, as I, I talked to an acquaintance I hadn't talked to in some years, and so I'm giving him a quick update. How's the kids? How's the church? And, and things are good. Metrics are good. Church is doing well. Marriage is doing well. Kids are doing well. It's a sweet time of life. It's a blessed time of life. It's a, I give God glory for that. And then in my heart, though, I have to be careful that I'm not taking pride in that. Pride in my lifestyle. Do you see where that is? Look, look what I've accomplished. Look, look what's happened. Look, look what's happening. That kind of pride pollutes, corrupts, and it is what caused Satan himself to fall from his position in heaven. The pride of life. So this is the problem, and this is the sub-point over number one. Why is it the problem? Fill in the blanks here if you choose to. The seduction and pride of earthly power. Let's put that slide up there. The seduction and pride of earthly power. Earthly power can be used for the glory of God. Earthly power can be used to advance the kingdom of God. 
Earthly power can be used to help the poor, help the oppressed. Earthly power can be used to make the community better. Earthly power can be used to make Jesus' name famous and known. But you have to understand there is a seduction to that and there's a pride to that. And if we're not abiding in the vine, if we're not in the presence of Jesus and in the word of God on a regular basis, that which is a gift from God will spoil in our hands. We need humility. We need a dependence on God's presence, a, a sense of, of interdependence on him or no, just full dependence on him where we have to have God because we know that if we don't have God, everything we accomplish will be corrupted. And that which is good today will spoil tomorrow without the presence of the Lord. This is not to make you fear for there is no fear in love because his presence is available to us every single day, every single moment, every time we call upon the name of Jesus. So it is that we must be aware. Jesus is saying, don't be like them. Do, do you see that? Don't be like them. They've got the robes and they have the seat of position and they have the title, but they don't have the favor of God. And so that's not who we're looking to. Bill Hybels is a famous preacher I've never met, but I've sat under his teaching quite a bit. Really popular among pastors. Uh, still a pastor in Chicago. So he, at one time, and he may still do this, flies all over America on Friday nights to help churches with special events and to um, be an influence on churches. One of these Fridays, he told this story. He flew into town. The schedule was really tight. There was a big event happening in the main sanctuary. They picked him up from the airport, rushed him to the church. They're whisking him down with, his, with an entourage down a back hallway to try to get to the big stage. As he's going through the back hallway, it is going through the nursery area. And he can see at his peripheral vision to his right and left, all of the different childcare workers taking the kids. And one particular lady caught his eye. And it's interesting that she caught his eye because she is the type of lady, as the story goes, that would be unnoticed. Not flashy, not flamboyant, not someone who normally would be recognized. And as the pastor in the group is trying to get this famous pastor down the hallway, he stops the group, he stops the entourage. And, and he goes to the lady that would normally be unnoticed. He shakes her hand, he looks her in the eye. And he said, I know tonight is a special event for your church. I know that everyone is part of the special service and you're here watching toddlers. I just want to say thank you. And he said that and when he was done, the pastor and the rest of the group tries to rush him on in to the big stage where everyone else is. When the night concluded, as he was saying bye to the pastor and getting back to where he needed to go, uh, and they were exchanging the things that needed to be exchanged. He, he, got, he received a note. The note was from that same nursery worker. And I can't remember how many years it was, but he read and she said, after so many significant years of working this nursery, that is the first time anyone looked me in the eye and said, thank you. It's an amazing story. It's a common story, but it's an amazing in this because how often do we overlook greatness among us? How often 
when we are looking at the metrics of earthly power and earthly success and earthly influence, do we miss greatness in our midst? And Jesus is saying, don't be like the religious leaders. But here's the second thing. He says, don't overlook the poor widow. Write it down if you're taking notes. Don't overlook the poor widow. And when I say poor widow, I don't mean we need to look for that particular person in, amongst us because the poor widow in this story is a prototype of the overlooked. And the overlooked may not be a female, maybe a male. It may not be someone single. It may not even be someone who is considered poor. But the overlooked among us, look again at verse 41 with me. This is Jesus sitting across from the temple treasury. He watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums, 42. And the poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor widow has put in more than all those giving to the temple treasury. For they all gave out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she possessed all she had to live on. If we were looking at the amount of giving in a church like this, or if let's get beyond even the church where the Red Cross or whatever case, the American Cancer Society, and they begin to list their donors from the largest amount to the smallest amount, the earthly perspective says, well, our top donors are these five or these 10, but only God really knows who the top donors are because the scripture tells us God doesn't look at the amount of the check or the amount of the cash. He looks at the amount of the sacrifice. When we get to heaven, we'll really find out who the givers are. And the only one who really matters that needs to know is God himself for he's the one that deserves honor, glory, and praise. Why is this the case? Write this down. The humility and honor of a sacrificial life. That's why we should not overlook the poor widow. That's why we should not overlook the one that everyone overlooks but Jesus. And I want you to see this transferable principle today that there are people among us that all of us are overlooking but Jesus is not overlooking. There are people among us that we are not noticing but Jesus is noticing because Jesus doesn't look at the things we look at. He doesn't look at the metric system that, that drives us and that, that determines, makes our decisions. He looks at the heart. He looks at the sacrificial life. And there is a humility to the sacrificial life. And not just a humility, there's a joy to the sacrificial life that comes from him. First Peter I want to share a couple of scriptures from 1 Peter today that are scriptures that we don't often, these type of scriptures, we don't often read because often we just need so much encouragement. You know, our, we're just trying to get through our life, so we just need encouraging verses. And these verses encourage us in a different way. It encourages us that God has a plan. It encourages us that God is in our suffering, that God is in the adversity, God is in the challenge, that God hasn't forgotten us, God has not abandoned us, and he's making us like Christ no matter what circumstance we're in. First Peter chapter four, verse one and two says, therefore, 
Since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve. Because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. Now, how many know that this afternoon you can get a cup of coffee or a glass of tea and just hang out in 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2 and learn a lot today? I don't really have to give a whole lot of elaboration on this because th this scripture is just something that would be good for all of us to think, to have the same resolve Jesus had, that we're gonna suffer if he wants us to, to get rid of sin in our life so we can live the rest of our life for his glory, not for ourselves. That's, that's a powerful, powerful statement. First Peter verse five, verse six, then after hearing teaching much like this, the apostle directs us to humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. I was blessed by what Beth said during worship. Beth, our worship leader, she's also my wife. And even though we live together, we don't, I don't necessarily preach my sermons to her before service. You know, we try to, we try to, uh, walk in step together and we do. But when she said, some of you, someone need to hear it today that God's timing is right. My heart left within me because the scripture I knew I was gonna share with you today. Beth had no earthly knowledge of the scripture from what I know. Humble yourselves that under mighty, God's mighty hand, he may exalt you at the proper time. You know, Jesus was an example of this. And I, I want you to know this, that some of you, uh, may be battling in the flesh because you're thinking humility is just not working out for me. Humility is not working out for me. I know it's odd for me to even say that out loud, but I want us just to be real here because sometimes we can see other people position themselves, other people try to beat the system, other people even cheat and they get earthly advancement and we're trying to be humble and just be like Jesus wants us to be and it just doesn't seem like it's working out right now. God wants us to encourage you today. Humble yourself under God's mighty hands and he will exalt you at the proper time. Not your timing, his timing. The great thing about the timing of the Lord is the proper time is the best time. Okay, so your timing is not gonna be as good as God's timing. Your timing's not gonna be as effective. So even when you try to create and make something happen that's good and seems beneficial and seems like, um, you know, it needs to happen now, and so you create it in the flesh. Uh, you create an Ishmael and don't wait for Isaac. Even though it seems good to do that in the now, it's not gonna be as good as if you wait for God's best. Wait for God's best. Humble yourself. Humble yourself before him. I, I wanna speak more to that as we move to closing, but I've got to speak about the most important thing before that. I wanna speak to the overlooked today. And this is the heart of, I really feel like the Holy Spirit is moving, gonna move today. Some of you are feeling overlooked and God, God wants to speak to your heart today. But before I, before I go there, I always have to take us back to Jesus. He's the center of our faith. He's the center of the sermon. He's the center of this church because Jesus is the overlooked. Here's the basic part. Jesus said, look at this lady. She's being overlooked. 
No one knows how much she's sacrificing. And as Jesus is pointing out this lady, it is a word picture of him himself. Because Jesus was not esteemed. And Jesus was not walking in the earthly, military, political power that the Jews were expecting. Jesus was giving his all, sacrificing his all, and yet he was overlooked. He was in the midst of people who had no idea that he was giving all. He was in the midst of people who had no idea that the deity of God himself had reduced himself to a tiny embryo in Mary's in Mary's womb. He had reduced himself to, to a child in a manger. The Jews were looking for earthly power, power, but the God that saved them, were he was in a feeding trough. I know a manger sounds romantic now and it sounds special to us because of the sentimental feelings attached to that. But do you understand that the God of all creation was laying in what animals ate out of? Jesus spent, we don't emphasize this enough, 30 years in obscurity, taking orders as a carpenter, building furniture and tools. God himself with the knowledge of his deity, living in humility. And how many customers overlooked him? How many neighbors and relatives overlooked Jesus? And then Jesus didn't have a home when his earthly ministry started. For three years, he was homeless. The son of man had no place to lay his hand. He would sleep on the couch of friends. And then he was crucified in the most humiliating way that a criminal can be crucified. And the humiliation went deeper than what the custom of the day was, was to tie a man's hands to a cross with rope. No, they nailed his hands to the cross. They nailed his feet to the cross. And so he went to Joseph of Arimathea's tomb because he didn't have the means to have his own tomb. And today, Jesus has proclaimed the resurrected one is alive and he's alive. He's alive through the testimony of his believers. See, Jesus is not among the attractive and Jesus is not among the influential and Jesus is not among the popular and Jesus is not among the intellectual elite who have rejected him. Jesus is found among the broken, the rejected, the failed. Jesus is found among the outcasts, the ill, the unwanted. Jesus is found among the misfits and the misunderstood and the accused. Jesus is found in the abandoned and Jesus is found in the overlooked. And when he pointed out this poor widow who gave it all in the treasury, he was also pointing to himself. The one who was overlooked was giving it all. And we will not overlook Jesus. And we will not overlook Jesus in the church. And that's, that's my fear today, that religion and Christianity has gotten, gotten better and more sophisticated and more entertaining. And in the midst of that, could we overlook Jesus himself? God, may it never be by your grace. So as we do every week, you'll have a chance if you choose to eat the bread and drink the cup that is symbolic of his body and symbolic of his blood. And as you eat the bread and chew the bread, and as you drink the cup, you're taking all of Jesus within you. And, and you're saying, Jesus, we will not overlook you. 
We will not overlook you. And you deserve our praise and glory. You deserve our church attendance. You deserve our weekly recognition. And, and Lord, this act of faith of eating the bread and drinking the cup, or if you choose just to sit quietly or to worship him, whatever it is, this act of faith proclaims the greatness of who you are. So I want to pray for some of you today. I want to pray for some of you today because this now we proclaim Jesus. We proclaim the cross. We proclaim the resurrection as should be the center of every service. But I really feel this is what one week ago today, probably right around this time, I really feel like the Lord spoke to me. I was, I was driving in the van uh, through the mountains of East Kentucky and I just told Beth, I said, God has already spoken to me about next Sunday. And here, here's what it is. Here's what it is. Some of you feel very overlooked. You feel overlooked. You feel like your sacrifice has not been properly recognized. And here's the truth is it's very well that it may, it's very well that could be true. And I want you to know that, that that could be true on earth. But Jesus is here today. And Jesus wants you to know this, that he has not overlooked one amount of sacrifice you've given for the kingdom. He has not overlooked one thing you've invested into the kingdom. I'm not talking about money here. It could be money, but I'm talking about uh, the, the, something much more valuable than money, and that's your heart. You put your heart into something. Maybe you put your heart into a church, or you put your heart into a ministry, or you put your heart into a child, or you put your heart into a marriage, or you put, put your heart into a, a, an employment place, a, a job. You put a, your heart into something and, and that which was your best, you feel like it's been rejected and overlooked. And, and, and maybe it's not even the rejected so much as that. It's just overlooked. It just wasn't appreciated. It wasn't noticed. And because of that, you feel like you've wasted time. But the Lord wants you to know today, you have not wasted your time because the Lord sees everything, even when man doesn't see it. You see, here's what I know too. Some of you... Some of you, maybe it's even me. I'm giving you the word and I'm the one that overlooked you. Isn't that how God could work sometimes? Uh, maybe you've done something for this church or for me. And as the leader of this church, I haven't recognized you, didn't send you a thank you note, didn't verbally, or, or maybe just didn't even understand the amount of sacrifice. And, and I hope I do. I don't want to be dismissive. I mean, it's my heart to be a good leader and, and to try to affirm and encourage and all those type of things a good leader should do. But, you know, I'm limited and you're limited. And it very well be that the very one that's overlooked you, God is giving a word through that person isn't that just like God, right? Is that just like God? Because the favor of God is better than the favor of man. And you need to understand that. You've gotten what's sweeter. You've gotten what is more eternal. You have gotten what is better. And that is the favor of God, the favor of God that's on your life. So Father, we thank you for that. I want you just, as, just to kind of find that place of prayer, kind of settle into that place right now. The Lord loves you. The Lord loves you. The Lord doesn't want your feet to get stuck. He wants your feet to get moving. He said this, how lovely are the feet of them who bring good news. How lovely are the feet of them that bring good news. Some of you feel like your feet are stuck in the mud. Your feet don't seem lovely because they're not going anywhere. You feel stuck. The Lord says, next step, next step. Don't worry about the destination because he's the destination, right? He's the destination. I don't want to show up anywhere that God's not at anyway. 
I don't want to go anywhere that at the end of the day, Jesus isn't there. So we don't have to worry about the destination. We just have to worry about the next step. And the Lord says, he's going to get your feet moving again. And you're not going to stay in the land of the overlooked. You're not going to stay in the land of those who have been overlooked and have not noticed because the Lord notices all things. So we praise your name for that, God. We praise your name.